0: All right, so we're starting out today. Series on marriage, dating, relationships, singleness, divorce. We're going to dive into all that whole bag of worms. Before we do, though, I'm going to ask you to jog your memory. And I'm going to start with ladies. And again, I know you guys have much better memories than the fellows in the room, so this should be much easier for you. Ladies in the room, when you were a young girl, yes or no, did you have that ideal wedding planned out? Like you imagined at some point in your little girl life, you closed your eyes or you got Barbie and Ken or whatever, and you began to devise up what this wedding was going to look like. And you knew who was going to be your bridesmaids and funny how they changed. You knew who you were going to get married to, what he was going to look like, probably like Eric off Little Mermaid. You had all these things laid out about what the wedding was going to be like, the cake or the aisle, the songs, all these other types of things. You knew how many kids you were going to have. You knew what they were going to be named. You knew how many animals you were going to have. You you even maybe imagine the husband picking you up and walking you through the threshold of your perfect home and nightly rubbing your feet (laughs) and just thinking about how these things would come to pass. And you envision those things. Now, ladies in the room, how many of you used your imagination as a child and, and you did that? Ladies watching online, how many of you, you would say, yeah, yes, I imagined those things. I planned those things out. I did at some point go through that thought process. Most women in the room and most women watching online are like, yep, mm-hmm, I've done that. Fellas, did you do that? You're not allowed here if you did. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We know, guys, we know, guys, what we dreamed of. We dreamed of just getting married, and getting lucky at least once a week. And you know what I'm talking about? Being able to go fishing every single Saturday. No questions asked. That's what we dreamed of. Right? Right. See, we all have expectations. In regards to romantic relationships, especially, regardless if you're if like you're a teenager who's just trying to like you just like barely pass puberty, we still have these expectations, even if you're retired, even if you're elderly, and maybe you're a widow or a widower and you're, you're still here. We all have expectations around romantic relationships. And, and the thing that I, I'm learning about expectations is man, bad things can happen when those expectations go unmet, right? You've experienced this where you got into something, you were expecting one thing, and you got into it, and you realized, man, this isn't what I was expecting. When they still did this thing. Or or you got married, and the same person you started dating wasn't the same person you were married to. And you're like, what's going on here? See, when unmet expectations happen, people get angry. People get let down. It leads to anger, infidelity, divorce, depression. And it can even potentially jack up the childhood of the kids involved in the relationship. That's what happens with unmet expectations. I heard this quote. uh, One of our elders shared it with me in between services. He said it like this. Expectations are resentments waiting to happen. I was like, "Mm, that's good. Expectations are resentments waiting to happen. We all have them. Especially when it comes to the people we love. The people we may be involved with. the, the, The hope for our marriage. The hope for our lives. We all have these different expectations. Now, in a room this size... There is likely so many people in here who, have gone, who are going, man, I've already been so wounded by relationships. I've already been so wound, wounded by my first marriage. I've been w- wounded by the first relationship that I was in. I've been wounded because I was the child of a divorced parents where they fought like cats and dogs, and my wound is, man, I don't want any part of that. We've been wounded. And some of us have been so wounded by romantic relationships that we're at a place now where we're asking that big question of, man, is it even possible to have a healthy relationship that leads to a healthy marriage? Is that even something that can happen? Is a good marriage possible? I'll answer that question. I'll answer the question of, is a good marriage possible with an emphatic yes, but it's not likely. Here's why I say that. A good marriage is 100% possible, but is 100% not likely if we do all the things that the rest of the world is doing, and that's how most of us operate. You have seen the stats? It's alarming. It's crazy. 50% of marriages end in what? Not happiness. Divorce. And the ones where that people stay married, you've seen these people. There's no fire. Fight like cats and dogs. Still, we're just together for the kids. And look, those odds are terrible. And here's the reality. You wouldn't take those odds with any other part of your life, right? Any other significant portion of your life, you wouldn't take the odds of 50% failure rate. Like it's 50% chance this is going to blow up and be bad. If I sent out an email Thursday next week, like you came to church this week, Thursday I sent out an email. I said, church, church families and people who may come and visit MCC. This past week there were a lot of people in the church building because of that, uh, there's been an outbreak of the stomach bug all throughout the building. And friends, there's a 50% chance that if you show up to church this coming Sunday, you are going to get a stomach bug. If I sent that email out, sent that video out, it said there's a 50% chance if you show up next Sunday, you're going to get a stomach bug. Do you know what you guys aren't doing? You're not coming here. Nobody's got time for diarrhea. Like, no. <laughs> Nobody wants that. You're going to stay home. You're going to be online. You're going to be online. Guaranteed. All right? If your bank calls you today, and they go, sir, ma'am, there has been a breach in our system, and there's a 50% chance by this time tomorrow, all of your money, all of your savings, all of your investments will be gone. Would you like to leave them in? Nobody in here is going, mm-hmm, yeah, just leave them. It's all good, man. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, It's just money I can make. Nobody's going to do that. You're going to go dig a hole in your backyard and go to the bank and get all that stuff out because you're not want to take that risk, right? Chuck, what's your favorite cereal? Cheerios? Cheerios, That's Cheerios. okay. <laughs> Online people, what's your favorite cereal? Chuck likes Cheerios. He's trying to be healthy. I thought he would have said Reese's Cups. What's your favorite fun cereal, Chuck? Yeah, Reese's. Reese's Cups. Okay, me too, me too. That's why we get along so good. Uh, all right, so say for instance, you know, everybody knows what you buy. They, they, they're able to keep track of everything that you, that you buy. Say you get an email. Whatever cereal that is. Chuck, Chuck, if you get an email that says, listen, Reese's Puffs, we found well, there's a 50% chance that if you continue to eat Reese's Puffs, you will in fact get cancer. Or like, are you going to keep eating Reese's Puffs? Not going to keep eating Reese's Puffs. It's not going to happen. And look, I, I make all these dumb examples to make the serious point that if we would do those things in regards to diarrhea, cereal, and money, why wouldn't we do the different changes that need to happen in regards to marriage? What makes us think that we could just come in and live marriage life and live relationship life? And I'm not just talking about if we already are married. Like, the things we do in our singleness, the things we do in our dating, the things we do when we're divorced, those things are what lead into whether or not we're going to have healthy relationships in the future. And why would we go, hey man, if there's a 50% chance that this is going to bomb. I'm just going to keep going and doing what everybody else is doing. That's dumb. And here's what I'm calling us to, out of dumb and into something different. That's why we're starting the series. That's why we're leaning into this, because this is the time for us to say, man, I don't want to be that. I don't want to lose it all. I want to set my life up to avoid some of the mistakes I've already felt, to avoid the mistakes I saw in my parents, to avoid the mistakes I see in my friends, my family, And here's what I want you to commit to do something different. One of the best, like, easy steps we can commit to do something different is stay engaged. For these next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the four primary things that kill romantic relationships. Today, we're going to talk about pride. Next week, we're going to talk about greed. Then we're going to talk about lack of communication. Lack of communication. And then we're going to talk about lust. Four things will undermine, kill, and ruin relationships. Will keep us from having the relationship that God has destined us to have. And hear me on this. This is where i got to preface before I dive into a lot of the deeper parts of this. And you guys, some of you, you hear me already beginning to talk about romantic relationships, and it already just hits on a wound that you've got in your heart. Because maybe you're single. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe this whole dating thing is just ridiculous. And you're like, I give up. I'm not trying to bumble. I'm not trying to swipe right. I'm not trying to do all these things. Like, I just want to meet somebody who loves Jesus and following after Jesus, and those people don't exist somewhat right now. I'm just going to just, like, play it safe and not do none of this. Here's what I want to say. God's primary purpose for your life is not to be married. His primary purpose for your life is not that you would get married. Not even that you would even have a happy marriage. That's not God's primary purpose for your life. God's primary purpose for your life is that you would magnify him with the way you live your life. God's primary purpose for your life, I'll say it again, is that you would glorify him by the way you live your life. That's his primary purpose on your life. So don't be up by any the pressure that mom, dad, grandmama, grandmama, the rest of society, Instagram, Facebook, whoever, puts on you that the only way you'll live out your calling is if you get married and pop out five or so kids and have a dog and live in this house or live in that neighborhood. No, that's not your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God wherever you're at, singleness, marriage, divorce, whatever glorify God that's his purpose for your life but if you do get married you'll probably say some vows like me and Jessica when we got married said some vows I Trent take you Jessica to have to hold you know the next line from this day forward and as we start this series that is the approach I need you to take in your heart not a, oh, this is all my past. Oh, this is my crazy future. When we fight like cats and dogs, and there's a big old lump in the carpet in the living room from all the stuff we've swept under there. No. Let's take a from this day forward approach. From this day forward, we're going to lean in and do something different. From this day forward, I'm not going to do marriage like my parents did in marriage. From this day forward, I'm going to go after the reality that my sins have been forgiven and I've got a hope and a better plan for a future from this day forward. Can we commit to that, church? Amen. All right, so today, we're going to dive into pride. The reason we're going to hit pride hard is because I believe God has some amazing plans for your future. But pride will undermine every single one of them. Pride is at the root of all the other things that will undermine your relationships. It is pride. See, pride, what it does is pride convinces lust that my pleasure comes before anybody else's concerns or their boundaries. Pride convinces anger that if I don't get my way, someone is going to have to pay. Pride convinces greed that the more I have, the happier I will be. Pride convinces laziness that somebody else should be doing this, not me. Pride convinces envy that I deserve better than what I'm getting right here. Pride convinces gluttony I'm the Lord of my body. I can put in it whatever I want. See, pride is the root. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride is what got evil in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, all over the place. Pride is behind the bite marks on the apple in the Garden of Eden. Pride is at the root of it. And we're going to dive into this today. The definition of pride that we're going to get comes from the book of Proverbs. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. For your, uh, open it up on your phone. You can go to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. Proverbs 168. This is what it says. Pride. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. All right, so let's lean in here. Before the unmet expectation, before the divorce, before the depression that comes from feeling lonely and single, before The kids hate you, and they have to sit in a courtroom and decide who they're going to spend weekends with and weekdays with. Before all of those things comes, pride. Pride comes before destruction. So if your marriage blows up, that you're married in the room right now, your marriage blows up, it will be because of pride. Pride will lead and go before that destruction. Okay? Pride goes before destruction. Now, this is where we're going to try to lean in and get a definition. So pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, again... We don't use the word haughty a whole lot in our society. We may say someone is a haughty, but we don't talk about H A, I don't even know how to spell it, H A U G H T Y. We don't talk about that a whole lot. The, the Greek word there for a haughty spirit, and in a lot of the way the Bible defines pride, that, that word haughty is just high. Some of the other Bible translations, they translate it as arrogant. So, an arrogant spirit. But really, it's true Hebrew definition. Is just the word high, a high spirit. And now, and again, our modern vernacular, what we talk about being high, is, is different than what they would talk about from being high. Say so a high spirit. And that's where we find the root of pride. If you're taking notes, simple definition I would give for pride is seeing self above everyone else. What's pride? Pride is seeing self above everyone else. I'm up here high. I can see everything. I got a bird's eye view because I am the bird. I am the eagle. I'm the top. Pride is seeing self above everyone else. And included, this is the bad part. This is the scary part. Included in that is God. Yeah, that's why God hates pride. Peter was writing to a church and he said that God actually opposes the proud, which is like if we're in football terms, I mean, God takes off, you know, he's got a totally different jersey on than the proud person and he's opposing them, lining up over on the other side of the ball of the proud. So God opposes the proud. And so for us, we've got to understand that pride, seeing myself higher than everybody else, and it will lead to the destruction. Destruction of my marriage relationship, destruction of my dating relationship, even, let me, single people in the room, even, pride will even lead to the destruction of your singleness. Here's what I mean by that. That's a critical point in time in your life. That God wants to do something incredibly special inside of your heart, inside of your mind, inside of your life, to prepare you for whatever may be next, whether that's marriage or whether it's a life of singleness. And again, you can glorify God and live out your purpose and your calling in life without ever getting married. But what our enemy wants to do is to make you consumed with you so that you think something's wrong with you because you don't have someone else with you. And in doing that, you'll waste that period of time and you'll settle for something that you should have never settled for and spend the rest of that time wishing you wouldn't have. See, pride comes before destruction. Another way that Proverbs, I think, helps us understand pride is Proverbs 11, verse 2. It says, When pride comes... Then comes shame. Now it's starting to hit home a little bit. We felt this, right? We felt shame when you've blown up the marriage, when you've had to have that family meeting and bring everybody in the room. Or you've been in that family meeting and gone, why, why can't I watch TV tonight? Why are we, ha- we don't have family meetings. You felt the shame of losing virginity before you were married. You felt the shame. And again, there's a lot of things we could blame. The Bible says pride is the one to blame. Our own personal pride. And that's the hard part about pride is no one else can pride you. You pride yourself. It says when pride comes, then comes shame. You know, I've, walked through the definition of shame before. And the difference between shame and guilt is guilt is when you do something wrong, you go, hey, I did something wrong. Shame is when you go, hey, I did something wrong and now I am something wrong. That's shame. Shame is an attack by the enemy on your identity that says, because I did something wrong, I am something wrong. And pride leads to that. But here in this verse, we're offered the flip side of the coin. We're offered a way out. We're offered a flashlight to help walk through the darkness of our shame that looks caused by pride. It says, but... With the humble, now we see the other side of the coin, but with the humble is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is is knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. If you just know the right thing to do, that's just knowledge. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do and then doing the right thing. So what I want to do today is, is I want to walk you through kind of three sections of stuff. One, I want to walk you through what pride looks like. Then I want to walk you through what pride sounds like. And then I want to show you, because there's an opposite side of that coin. There is a solution out of this. I want to show you who humility is. All right? So let's walk through this together. Now, again, this is crowd participation. This is online participation. When you see you, I want you to just make a little mental note. And again, this, you guys seen the movie Hitch? Anybody seen the movie Hitch? You remember when when Will Smith is trying to coach the other chubby white guy how to how to dance, and he's just doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and Will Smith does this. He says, nope, elbows here, and just, just do this, and I would say the same thing is true in this. If you're sitting here with your spouse, this is the elbows tucked in <laughs> portion of this message. All right, keep them in. Let me tell you what pride looks like, and you mentally don't look at them. You see where you see yourself. First part, what pride looks like. Pride looks like making everything personal and being easily offended. That's pride. You said something kind of weird, got a text message that you read into it. Pride, taking everything personal and being easily offended. What does pride look like? Pride looks like being quick to find faults in other people, especially people if you're in a romantic relationship, being quick to find faults on what they're doing wrong and what they're not doing right and how they didn't do something the way that you thought it should have been done. What does pride look like? Looks like not listening to other people's input. Mm Mm-hmm. That's That's what it sounds like when it's that. They tell you something. Mm Mm-hmm. Pride. What does pride look like? Looks like feeling superior and going against the authority. Saying rules don't apply to me. What's pride look like? It looks like not seeing my own mistakes and flaws, even if people point them out. For me, confession here, the one that I'm you're most likely to see in me is being quick to find fault. I'm an assessor of situations. Walk in, see what's wrong, and know how to fix it. And sometimes it's a blessing. Most of the time, it's a curse. Especially in regards to my marriage. And I didn't think it was going to be, but I did have early warning signs. I got off to college and had a roommate, and my roommate was very different than me. I was more the messy type, outgoing. I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the dorm, so it didn't really matter to me what the dorm was like. I slept in the dorm. So I don't, whatever, dorm, sleep in it. That's it. My roommate, on the other hand, he organized his closet based off what color his shirts were. And he ironed shirts before he hung them up. He kept his side of the the dorm room immaculate. Meanwhile, my side was rough. This is why I wanted to convert to bunk beds so the lines between whose side was what would be blurred. He wasn't for it. (laughs) One day, because I am good at finding fault and good at questioning why people do things, and again, it's a question, well, why you do that, but it's a question with the undertone of, why are you doing that? Which kind of sounds like that's a stupid way to do that. Like, you know what I mean? When you ask that question, like, I'm not just, I'm not asking you why you're doing that because I really want to understand why you're doing that. I'm asking you why you're doing that because I think it's stupid. I want you to be able to hear that by the way I ask you. <laughs> All right? Nobody else like this? And so I, I was just, I don't even remember what it was I was braiding him about, but I was just letting him have it. A questioned something that he was doing. And, and this is one of the only times he ever kind of got blew up at me a little bit. But he goes, I feel like I'm always under a microscope with you. And I was like, whatever, and I just kind of blew that off. And again, that's probably part of one of those other things on pride. There again, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see what I do wrong. And I thought it was just over with. I didn't really connect the dots. Fast forward about ten years, me and Jessica during pandemic lockdown. Because I mean, I, we were probably the only couple who I know. You guys are super safe. Y'all didn't argue during lockdown. <laughs> we did. Um, and I remember. I was Jessica and I are having one of our discussions. Um, <laughs> we get to this place, and, and she says, and, I, and a quote, direct quote, I feel like I'm always under a microscope with you. And it was like, you know when you're watching the movies, and you have that flashback? And it was like, I was back in the dorm room. I went, and it all came full circle. And I went, dang, that's me. I think my way of doing everything is the right way of doing everything and here's maybe what God was trying to teach me back then that I didn't learn right now, that I actually don't want to be married to myself. See, love isn't trying to twist somebody into becoming the same version as you. Like, Remember, if you're married or you're dating, and you're the person who has a really easy time finding fault, you probably don't want to be married to you. So don't get mad at them because they don't do everything your way, because you don't want to be married to you. Trust me. That'd be even worse. So that's what pride looks like. Now let's walk through what pride sounds like. What does pride sound like? First way, one of the things pride sounds like is I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy. How many of you heard that? I deserve to be happy. How many of you thought that? Now we're getting really honest. I deserve to be happy. Now, again, if you're dating or like thinking about dating, like this is probably you. Like I deserve to be happy. I deserve to have a good, someone treat me right. I deserve to be happy in this. And, and right, yes, man, we deserve to be happy. There deserves to be joy. And I, I, again, I'll get into something you know, a little bit deeper than happiness. But here's the deal. If you're at that place, and this is your thinking, your mindset is, I deserve to be happy, and you are pursuing things and dating things that are maybe leading to marriage— Here's why I want to tell you, you are undermining your future. If you're saying, thinking, and feeling in your heart, whether you're saying out loud or not, I deserve to be happy. You're undermining your marriage because marriage was not created for you to be happy. Marriage is created for you to be holy. That's why God did it. That's why, again, marriage in our world where we exist is just a copy of God's marriage. We didn't create marriage. When God was de- Here's, This is what a lot of people don't get about marriage. When God... Talks about marriage in the Bible, and he talks about the relationship between his church and Jesus. He's not going, oh, let me think about how I can describe how I love the church. Mm, it's like how married people are, and like Jesus is the spouse, and uh, the church is the is the bride, or the groom and the bride. No, that. In Jesus being the bridegroom and us being the bride of Christ, that is the original. That's the the OG version of marriage. What we have is a bookmark, a placeholder, something that is supposed to help us understand the glory and the majesty and the beauty that is between the marriage between us as the body of Christ and Jesus as the bridegroom. That's the true thing. Our thing down here is just a copy. And So when we think about I want to be happy. you got to understand, marriage, and the same way that our relationship with Jesus as the bridegroom and us as the bride of Christ is created to make us holy, pure, without blemish, without spot, washed by the blood of Jesus, the same way that that is our relationship as the church to Jesus, the same way for us in our actual, like here, husband-wife marriages is created not to make you happy, but with the same purpose that God's marriage to the church is, to make her holy, to make him holy. What else does pride sound like? I know I'm right. I know I'm right. Or, 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 it's, or it's cousin. You're remembering wrong. I never said that. We're laughing because we're like, oh man, I'm not the only one. And again, it's good. We're not all the only ones here. I know I'm right. As I was doing some soul searching on this, this past week, um, one of the things I feel like the Holy Spirit revealed to me is I have actually never won an argument in my marriage. Here's what I mean by that. If you were watching my marriage, like an episode of This Is Us, you would have went, Trent won that argument. He told her. She and She apologized and she admitted something first. You'd see a whole lot of me losing arguments. But what I realize is I've actually never The best that I can remember, I've never won an argument in my marriage. And what I mean by that is though you may have seen it look like I won, pride is what won. And here's what I need you to understand. And this is dating, marriage, really any relationship, period, with somebody else. If pride wins, both lose. So if you win, and you win because your prideful argument won the case and sounded best, again, I preach for a living. I stand up on stage and talk for 30, 45 minutes sometimes. Like, I'm going to win an argument in my house. She just yells at kids. So when it comes to words and putting up a crafty argument, like, I'm at an advantage. I'm having to humble myself and go, every time I thought I've won an argument, I've really lost because what actually won was pride. And Satan's in the background going, I won again. So who's winning yours? Who won your last argument? Between the person you're dating, between the person you're married to, between the person who's your ex, who won the last argument? Did pride win? And Satan tricked you into thinking you did? Maybe you need to go apologize. Here's what pride sounds like. Just saying. i just saying. Hey, you need to know. That's what pride sounds like. I love this verse. I'm thinking about getting tattooed um, somewhere I can see it. It's Proverbs 14:3. Listen to this. So good. Some of you need to be a life verse. A fool lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. One more time. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Do you know how the lips of the wise protect them? By staying closed. <laughs> that is primarily how your lips will protect you. By staying closed. Fellas in the room, we got to work on our timing, guys. Timing is critical. You probably should say it. Like, they keep, women in the room, you, please just talk to me. Just, just talk to me. You know, I can't tell you how many couples. He just don't talk to me. You do need to talk. But when you do, make sure it's the right time. And protect you. We don't have to say all the things that we need to say. Listen, we all have thoughts. We all have opinions. We all have feelings about things. But one of the things that will protect us from so much strife, so much trouble. Is if we will watch what we say. And not just what we say. How we say it. That's how we protect ourselves. See a fool's mouth lashes out with pride. But the lips of the wise protect them. Last way we'll talk about what pride sounds like. This is a hard one. I'd be better off without you. Now, some of us have heard that out loud and seen that come to pass. That's why our divorce is one of the most painful, brutal things because this is a death that keeps on living. But we've heard, I- I'd be better off without you. Or we thought, I'd be better off without you. These dishes would be easy. I could load this dishwasher better without you. Let me do it my way. I could raise these kids without you, you're just hurting them. That was my mom. Be better off without you. See, this is the the really brutally painful thing about pride is pride sets you up as savior. It sets you up as the one who is the solution to the problem. And that's that's the painful thing, is you can't save yourself. You can't save the marriage either. You can't save the kids. You can't save anything. That's why the opposite of pride is humility to go, I can't do this. I need you, Jesus, to come in to help out. See, the problem with pride is that we see ourselves as a solution, not the problem. We need to see Jesus' solution. So we talked about what pride looks like. Talked about what pride sounds like. Now I want to show you who humility is. And I say it like that on purpose. Because humility is not some cool character trait that you can put on and do better at life at. Humility is a person, and that person's name is Jesus. If you got a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. This is a passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church much like ours, going through this, this, this tyranny of trying to figure out, how, what does life look like? How do I live this life where Jesus is not just this um, model or this new religious figure that I follow and I try to emulate and work myself up to being like him, but how do I actually allow this Jesus, who is now supposedly indwelling inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live out of me so that other people can experience his love, his grace, his mercy, and that my life can actually have joy. He writes this to this church. Chapter 2, verses 3 is where we'll start. Go through verse 11. He comes out just bare knuckle fist fight swinging and says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And right there, boom, we all took the L. Like we, how many, Anybody want to be honest today and say, have you done anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? All rise. Right. That's everybody. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. But he says, but in humility, okay, again, he's offering the other side, the opposite. He's offering the solution. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. You know that these are some of the best people to be around. The ones who, when you're around them, you feel like genuinely they treat you like you're more significant than them. You go to their house and they're the ones who just exude hospitality. Can't get you something to drink? No, you take the good chair. You do this. You love to be around those people. And there's nothing more attractive than someone who has that ability to count others more important than themselves. Verse four. So let each of you look not only to your own interests but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Okay. Your mind is inside of your what? It's not a trick question. Your mind's inside of your what? Body, head, yes. So this is an internal thing. This is not a fake it till you make it. Behavior modification. This is Jesus coming in and from the inside out radically changing things. This this passage right here, um, verse 4 or verse 5 is so critical. You want a happy marriage? Spend the next week, month, year figuring out what verse 5 really means. I don't have time to dive into it all today, but hear me, friend. Verse five, life changer. Have this mind among yourselves. So Here's how you should think, live, act. Here's this mind among yourselves. Here's how you should determine what is valuable and how you should make decisions. Have this mind among yourselves. Three words, so critical. Which is yours in Christ Jesus? Which is yours in Christ Jesus? So he's saying, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So how do we think? How do we operate? How do we determine, okay, how should I respond to what they just said to me? Am I writing the wrong story in my head, or, or is something really up here? Um, is that really something that I should talk about right now and find fault in that right now? Okay, she said I do this. Is that really the case? How am I supposed to think about these things? How am I supposed to respond to these things? He says, have this mind in you that is Yours in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ. So it lives, guides, and governs what we do. And what's crazy is it blows the behavior modification and try harderness out of the water. It's us surrendering and going, Jesus, you didn't just go to the cross and die so I could try to live like you. You went to the cross and went, look, here, here's the a, here's a thing, you gotta get. When you put your hope and your faith and your trust in Christ, he doesn't go, all right, now I'm watching you. Do a good job, live a good life, read the Bible a lot, learn what to do, and then please do it. And at the end of your life, if you did what was right, I'll let you in. No, he says, (laughs) ha ha. You could never do this. Thank you so much for being humble enough to realize you could never, ever, ever, ever do this. And he comes in and he says, now my Holy Spirit's gonna live inside of you. This is gonna give you everything that you need to be able to say, I'm sorry first. It's gonna give you everything you need to be able to muster up all the grit and tenacity to pick your underwear up off of the floor and go and put them in the hamper to clean the pee off the seat for the fifth time this week to just go, you know what? I love him. I love him. I love him. <laughs> That's the mind of Christ that allows us to be able to do those things. Because here's, you know this, the mind governed by the flesh never will get there. Divorce after divorce after divorce after broken home after broken home after broken home after broken home home proves that point. God's calling us to live differently. And the mind of Christ can be in you. Have you received it yet? Have you let him in to to govern the inside motivational parts of your life? Verse goes on, verse 6. Quickly here. Who, okay, so that's Jesus' mind. Now it's telling us how Jesus thinks, what Jesus' attitude is, how we should think, govern, and act like Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Now a little bit of clarification there, where it says he was in the form of God. That doesn't mean he was like some pretend God. That means like he is God, was God, was with God from the beginning, didn't like just show up at Bethlehem on Christmas morning. That's not who he is. He's with God all eternity past in perfect union, perfect God. It says, in the beginning was God, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's John 1, 1, 1, That's it. So he is God. But he did not count that equality with God something to be grasped. The kind of way the Greek translates is he didn't count that as something to be used to his advantage. But he emptied himself, pours himself out by taking the form of a servant. He didn't just come to earth, live as a king... And say, here's the best way to do this. He became a servant, slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So how do we put this in our mind in a way that makes sense. It's very simple. I teach it to my children. I teach it to you. Jesus, way up here, God, why, why, why do we worship him? Here's why. Jesus, way up here, God, let's go of that and comes all the way down to the lowest of lows. Comes to a manger, Walks barefoot through Galilee, has a stepdad, if you will, who's a carpenter, born and raised in Nazareth, which is like, I don't know, worse than Jackson. (laughs) I live in Jackson, so I can say that. And then goes to a cross. But the, but the night before he goes to the cross, like takes off his outer garment and, and doesn 't just say like hey i 'm going to think like a slave and pretend to be a slave, but like takes off his outer garments and washes disciples feet like this this is what God is doing. goes all the way down here and then goes. To a cross, the worst possible, most brutal, and again, the whole Hebrew religion—if you followed them and you read the Old Testament scriptures—that they would say that the person who is hung on a cross, that is a cursed individual. So he didn't just, you know, do some bad things, but in the eyes of everybody around, this man is is not just you know taking some bad stuff, but he is becoming the curse. Goes into a tomb, and then God counts to three, and he is risen from the grave. And as he's risen, because of how low he went, again, because of how low he went, determines how high he went. How much he went back to. And the fact that Jesus went all the way down to those depths and plumbed those depths and drank the wrath of God to the dregs for people like me and you that I deserve, that you deserve. Now, he sits at the right hand of God, fully exalted. And he came with his outer robe and he came with his peacemaking on. He came with all that on. But listen, he's here now. at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he says to us in marriage, in life, I see you go-getters. I see you people who want to have the best marriage on the block. I see you people who want to have those things. I see you. Here's the way up, down. Here's the way up, down. How do you be great? Serve. How do you be the greatest? Slave. Flips the whole kingdom principle all the way on his head. We like to hear sermons about we're the head, not the tail. We're the, blah, 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 blah. we're king's kids, blah, 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 blah. Look at what the king's kid did. And seriously consider what he may be asking you to do. Especially in the context of marriage. Especially in the concept of dating. Especially in your singleness. Especially in your blended family. Especially with your ex. What may he be asking you to do? I'm going to end today by inviting you to ask this one big question that I believe will kill pride faster than anything else you could ask and will grow humility at a rate that you have not experienced yet. Here's a question, how can I help? I believe as as Jesus and, and and God the Father are in heaven they're together and they're devising up this grand rescue mission. Have they spent years and years in heaven watching Moses and Abraham and Samson and David and Saul and all these guys just jack up earth and fail after time and time and time again to wander in the wilderness and have bad king and this king getting overthrown and them trying to throw prophets in whales and them throwing prophets inside of fire and them throwing prophets inside a lion's den and then God continued to restore and restore and restore and then God being silent for a long period of time as they're in heaven figuring out hey what do we got to do I imagine Jesus going how can I help and the plan that the father gives him is one that involves his face being mutilated beyond recognition his closest friends and confidants, abandoning him, rejecting him, betraying him. It involves him losing the most important thing in his life, a relationship with his father, so that you could have that relationship. He asked, how can I help? And so my invitation to you is to ask that same question. In your marriage, how can I help? And you may be surprised about what you get, And your singleness, I'd be asking somebody, how can I help? Because singleness is a season where the focus, listen, if you keep the focus in your singleness on you, it is gonna beat you down, it's gonna weigh you down. The best advice I can give to the single people in the room is take the focus off of yourself. Learn the art and the beauty of self-forgetfulness and see what God does. As you run after him, you will run, 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 run. And from time to time, you look left, you look right. If you see somebody beside you running just as hard, you may have found someone who is compatible. To take the focus off yourself, put it back on Jesus, and run. Some of you, it may mean calling the ex who you got to share custody with and going, hey, how can I help? For your sake, for the kid's sake, what can I do to help? If you're married, definitely you got to ask this question. Got to answer it honestly, too. If they ask, like ladies in the room, hear me on this. If your husband is humble enough to ask you this question, tell them the truth. And I know guys, we like to pride ourselves on just being doers. Like, just give me something to do. And most guys in the room, even right now, let me just, welcome inside the male brain. When, when the guys in this room, when they're thinking, I'm going to ask my wife, what can I do to help? And she's going to tell me some chores. Most guys are thinking you're going to tell them chores. If that's really what you want them to do, tell them. But don't tell them what they think they need to hear. Don't tell them what you think they need to hear. Don't tell them what you think they're looking for. If the thing that you really need them to do, and when they ask, How can I help? If you really just need them to listen to you for 30 minutes to share what's on your heart that you've been holding in and bottling in for months and months and months and months, just say that. Don't send them to do chores. Don't tell them about toilets. Don't tell them that you need gas or a flat tire or any of those things, oil change, none of that. Tell them what's on your heart. Men in the room. I'm not even going to begin to pretend to get inside the female brain here. But when you ask, or when she asks you, remember you have emotions too. If you need her to listen, you have to give her something. You can't pretend to be too tough, you can't pretend to have it all together you got some brokenness, fellas. And I'm telling you something. If you married people in the room, you got some brokenness in you. And if she's humble enough to come to you and ask that question, open it up and pour some of it out and let her help. Because God put her in your life to help with some of that. And I believe he wants to do some restorative, amazing work. Here's one thing that's deep on my heart as a pastor. I'll end with this. I was a young pastor. I go to church conferences. And I remember hearing this one uh, pastor who's very famous, uh, one, led one of the biggest churches in the country, uh, has since, I don't know, did like a lot of famous pastors that you guys pr- please pray for me and other pastors, man. It's not an easy gig. Um, had an affair, undermined all his leadership. But one of the things he said that I still do agree with despite some failures. He said, I believe the church, the local church, is the hope of the world. And I believe that. Like, that sounds great on paper. I really do believe that. That the church, the local church, is the hope of the world. That the hope of the kids in this community finding Jesus. That the hope of racial reconciliation happening. The hope of, of, of people not, in, not starving or not teenage kids being homeless in our city. I believe the church is the hope for that. But back it up. What's the hope of the church? See, I believe The families. Are the hope of the church. And I'm not talking two kids and a dog and that kind of family. I'm talking about us as the unit, your household. Like what happens in there? That's the hope. Whatever your family may look like, whether it's you as single, whether it's you as, as, as divorced with two kids, whether it's you as that you know, traditional or whatever family it may be, that's the hope of the church. And I even take it a step further. And I know, you know, I risk saying this, but it's what's on my heart. So I'm just going to tell you: if you ask me what what's the hope of the family, say the fathers. And that's not me saying that if there's not a man in your house, that your family is hopeless. Because again, I believe that's where the church fills in. I believe that's where the church does some things. And and there's some amazing women of God in this church that we've got around roundtables. And I've just been blown away by the spiritual courage and fervor that these women of God have. And so I know without a shadow of a doubt, as as a young man who came from a single household, that there was a lot of hope in that household. And it came through my mom as that vessel. But here's what I would say. I believe God's primary intention for the hope of the family is the Father. And I believe he's calling us as men of God to step up and step in the gap so that we can be the hope of our family, families can be the hope of the church, and the hope the church can get back to being the hope of the world. That's the big picture. And I believe we can do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that uh, you're up to something. I can feel it. I just know it's here. I think you want to do great things and the single, dating, divorced, and married relationships in this room. (sighs) Help us to get out of our own way, Jesus. Get in the Word. Get on our knees in prayer. Humble ourselves before each other. Ask for help. Be willing to listen. Be willing to say, I'm sorry. Forgive us for the way we've made this thing that is marriage, a distortion of what you intended it to be all along, God. I pray for healing and for restoration. Jesus, as we take communion today, I pray that as we look at the bread and as we look at the juice that we see it truly as it's in our hand, as a firsthand representation of how much you pursued us, how recklessly you you pursued us to connect us to the Father, and that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to lay down our pride and first be reconciled to you, and then, God, be reconciled wholly, deeply, intimately, fully known and fully loved, to the other people in our lives who we love deeply. In your name, Jesus.